Thank you very much for the kind introduction. Um, and thank you very much for coming today. Um, and um, thanks to the committee for the invitation to come down and enjoy some uh, Edinburgh summer, summer weather. Uh, this is uh, sort of high summer in Edinburgh, and uh, it's great. Uh, uh, so uh, if you want to really uh, experience uh, some weather, uh, come to Edinburgh almost any time of the year. And if you are there long enough, you will get probably all four seasons within uh, any 24-hour period. As you can tell from my accent, I'm not Scottish. Uh, the Scottish uh, universities are kind enough to appoint foreigners now and then, and so it's been a great privilege uh, to have served uh, the University of Edinburgh for 15 years in the chair of New Testament. And, um, uh, and now that I'm emeritus, I'm free to be able to come and take wonderful invitations like this, so it's great. Thank you very much for coming again. I'm going to proceed directly into the lecture. Um, it'll take about uh, 45 minutes or so, I think, to get through this, and so um, um, there, there, it will come to an end, uh, and uh, uh, will not keep you here forever. Um, this arises out of a research project that's based in Norway, at the, at, um, uh, in, in Oslo, on prayer and early Christian identity. Uh, and so the, the full title of this would be The Place of, early, of Jesus in Early Christian Prayer and Early Christian Identity. The place of Jesus in earliest Christian prayer practice is multifaceted, profound, and without true precedent or analogy in the religious setting in which it emerged. Indeed, the integral place of Jesus in the praying of earliest Christians gives it the character of a novel development of profound significance. Moreover, we see this multifaceted place of Jesus in early Christian prayer already presupposed in our earliest extant texts, which are the letters of Paul. So this development was quite early and rapid, which makes it all the more interesting and intriguing. Now I'm going to lay out basically four ways in which Jesus features in earliest Christian prayer practice and understanding as intercessor or advocate himself for them, um, as the teacher and model of Christian prayer, as a recipient of prayer, and finally as the basis for Christian prayer. So first, Jesus as intercessor or advocate. It is well known that one of the emphases of the epistle to the Hebrews in the New Testament is Jesus' status as the heavenly and true high priest, too many passages to cite here. But though elaborated distinctively in Hebrews, the idea that the exalted Jesus acts as a heavenly intercessor for believers is reflected as early as the famous passage in Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 8. Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us, in chapter 8, verse 34. Here, Jesus' death, resurrection, and high position at the right hand of God collectively underscore the efficacy of his intercession, which means that any condemnation of believers, says Paul, from any other quarter is futile. This suggests that Jesus' intercession relates particularly to the establishing of believers as acceptable before God that Paul here refers to Jesus' intercessory role so briefly and in such compressed phrasing suggests that he was not here introducing the idea but instead presumed an acquaintance with it among his intended readers. So although this is the first recorded reference to it, the idea must have emerged even earlier than the epistle to the Romans. Moreover, that this epistle was sent to a church that Paul had not found in suggests that belief in Jesus' heavenly intercession circulated across various early Christian circles, both Pauline and non-Pauline circles. The term used here 
for intercede for us, the Greek word entukano, could designate in various usage petitioning or appealing to various superiors, rulers, and in religious discourse appeal to a deity on behalf of others. We have another indication of this in the reference to Jesus as believer's advocate with or before God in another text in 1 John chapter 2. We have a parakletos, we have an advocate in heaven uh, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Here the author uses a term found in the New Testament elsewhere exclusively in the Gospel of John where it functions there as a kind of title for the Holy Spirit who is also called the parakletos, the advocate. In 1 John 2, however, the term is not really a Christological title because it doesn't have the definite article with it. Jesus is not described as the advocate but as an, an, an advocate. So it's not a title but instead seems to portray Jesus' function as an advocate before God on behalf of believers. In the John passage, the Spirit acts as Jesus' advocate with believers. In 1 John, Jesus acts as advocate of believers with God. You've got sort of an advocate on either end of the, uh, of the communication process. In the immediate context of 1 John, Jesus is also referred to as the expiation or atonement for the sins of believers and the whole world. This latter word, expiation or atonement, applied to him again later on in the epistle in chapter 4, reinforcing the focus on Jesus' advocacy and intercession as primarily concerned with the sins of believers. In John 14, 16, however, Jesus promises to ask the Father to give the disciples another advocate in this case, the Spirit. And in chapter 17 of John, practically the entirety of the chapter is taken up with the famous high priestly prayer of Jesus himself for his followers. This uniquely Johannine composition has the earthly Jesus dramatically prefigured in the intercessory role in heaven reflected in these other texts. Now to return to Paul's reference in Romans to Jesus interceding for a moment, it's interesting that earlier in the same chapter he also refers to the Spirit as interceding for believers, leading one to wonder how he saw the relationship between the intercessory role of Jesus and the intercessory role of the Spirit. But this may simply reflect Paul's close linkage of the Spirit and the risen Jesus. And there are various passages we could go into where that seems to be clear. In any case, the genuine intercession of both seems to figure in Paul's beliefs. But there's a difference in the specific nature of the intercession of each one. Paul refers to the Spirit's intercession as somehow assisting believers in their own efforts to pray, apparently compensating for the limited ability of believers, quote, to know how to pray as we ought, he says. By contrast, as noted earlier, Jesus' intercession in Romans chapter 8 seems concerned with justifying or defending believers before God against possible accusation. It is not entirely clear whether this is an action that Paul understands as happening in the present or set at some time in the eschatological future. The latter option finds some plausibility in the synoptic references to Jesus either acknowledging or denying people before God, which appear to be set in the scene of future reckoning. On the other hand, the present tense of the verbs used in Romans chapter 8 may suggest that Paul refers here to Jesus as currently interceding in some way for believers. To judge from, such, from a text uh, such as we find in Hebrews, it looks as though Jesus' priestly role, which includes heavenly intercession, could serve as a basis for confidence in prayer. In chapter 4 of Hebrews, the author encourages readers, quote, to approach the throne of grace with boldness 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. And this on the basis of Jesus as an effectual high priest. So, earliest Christians saw Jesus' heavenly intercession as involving his petitions to God on behalf of believers and also as authenticating and in some sense validating their own prayer petitions, giving believers, therefore, a distinguishing basis for confidence in their prayers. Now, secondly, Jesus is prayer teacher and prayer model. In early Christian tradition, Jesus also functioned as an example of prayer and as a key teacher of prayer. All four Gospels have references to Jesus praying as well as encouraging and instructing in prayer, although there are some interesting variations among them in emphases and even, curiously, in vocabulary. The Gospel of Matthew includes distinctive material in which Jesus teaches his disciples not to pray for public display, as do the hypocrites, he says, and not with long prayers, the way Gentiles do. But instead, he says, to address God in private and with a direct simplicity in Matthew chapter 6. The Matthean version of the Lord's Prayer, which probably more correctly should be called the Disciples' Prayer, since it isn't something Jesus is to pray, but something his disciples are to pray. But we call it the Lord's Prayer. The Matthean version of the Lord's Prayer immediately follows these instructions, which obviously functions here as the model, the prayer functions as the model for the kind of direct simple and confident prayer that has been advocated in the preceding verses. In contrast, note the setting of the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, which begins by portraying Jesus himself at prayer, then asked by his disciples to teach them to pray. In Luke's account thus, Jesus not only teaches a prayer, but is pictured himself as modeling prayerfulness for the disciples and the readers. Moreover, in the passage, the disciples' comparison to John the Baptist instructing his disciples about prayer and then asking Jesus to do the same for them tends to underscore, again, the distinguishing and identifying function of the Lord's Prayer as given distinctively to Jesus' disciples. As James Dunn observed, quote, Luke presents the prayer precisely as a badge which was designed to mark out the disciples of Jesus from those of John the Baptist. Dunn also judged that the Lord's Prayer is, quote, the single most important part of Jesus' teaching on prayer and the most characteristic prayer of Christians from then on. Certainly to judge from its subsequent place in Christian tradition, the Lord's Prayer has been the single most influential expression of Jesus as teacher of prayer. That variant forms of it appear in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke shows, I think, that the tradition of Jesus teaching such a prayer circulated and was affirmed in various early Christian circles. The variations in the prayer, in fact, reflecting its actual adaptation and use. You know, the only kind of tradition that doesn't change is a dead, non-used tradition. Any tradition that is used automatically gets changed. So the variations in the Lord's Prayer reflect that it was actually a living prayer in usage. This function of the Lord's Prayer as identifying Christians is further confirmed in its appearance also in the extra-canonical text called the Didache in chapter 8, in a form almost identical to that in the Gospel of Matthew, where it is specifically indicated as the distinguishing form of Christian prayer, which the author says, the Lord commanded. In some other synoptic passages, Jesus urges faith in settings that suggest a connection to prayer. 
These include the account of Jesus healing the epileptic child and the discussion following the withering of the fig tree. In both these cases, Jesus urges faith and prayerfulness and so on. There's also a parable unique to the Gospel of Luke in which the author presents as uh, as, uh, teaching intended to promote persistence in prayer, Luke chapter 18. A similar encouragement to confidence and persistence in prayer appears in Luke chapter 11, which includes the parable of the friend at midnight, unique also to Luke. The remainder of the passage, Jesus' exhortations to confident prayer, however, paralleled in Matthew. But in comparison with these gospel passages where Jesus teaches about or urges prayer or faith, there are considerably more where Jesus is pictured himself as praying. A few of these have already been noted. Both Mark and Matthew have Jesus sending off his disciples in a boat at one point and then going off alone to pray. In Mark 1, verse 35, early in the account of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is also pictured as arising early and going off for private prayer. Moreover, all three synoptics have references to Jesus praying in Gethsemane before his arrest. And the interweaving in that scene of exhortations to his disciples to pray rather clearly presents Jesus' prayers as in some sense probably the positive model over against the poor model of the sleepy disciples. Now, the usage of the word Abba, which means father in Aramaic, in the Mark and Gethsemane prayer is interesting and has drawn a number of proposals as to why it's there. This Aramaic word appears elsewhere in the New Testament only in Galatians chapter 4 and in Romans chapter 8. Both of these latter texts, however, referring to early Christian corporate prayer practice of addressing God as Abba, Father. Paul's use of the Aramaic term in these texts seems to reflect an effort to link verbally for his Greek-speaking audiences their prayer practices with the Aramaic-speaking prayer practices of Jewish believers in Roman Judea, as is also likely reflected in his use of the term maranatha, another Aramaic phrase, at the end of 1 Corinthians. Now, it has often been judged that this liturgical use of Abba in Aramaic-speaking circles is in turn best explained by positing Jesus' distinctive use of the term in prayer, which then became a distinguishing mark of prayer initially amongst Aramaic-speaking Christians, and then Paul ca- uh, carries it over into Greek-speaking congregations. And that may be the case, but it's not, an art, it's not an issue I'm going to engage here. For the present discussion, the more relevant question is what particular point there was in the inclusion of Abba in the Mark and narrative of Jesus' Gethsemane prayer, a question underscored by its absence in all the parallel narratives. That is, if if the reason it's there is because that's the term Jesus used, then why the heck don't the other evangelists use it as well? Clearly, in each of the Gospels, there was a choice of how to present Jesus in this prayer. If, as seems likely, Mark's Greek-speaking readers were expected to recognize the term from its use in their liturgical practice, then for them, one effect of the appearance of Abba in the Gethsemane narrative would have been to align their use with Jesus' prayer here. Indeed, they were likely intended to see Jesus' use of this form of prayer dress as the basis for their own, and it may have been. Moreover, given Paul's references to the use of Abba Father by believers, as in the context, he says, indicative of their intimate filial relationship with God, perhaps Mark intended to emphasize Jesus' intimate filial relationship as the context in which to read the poignant scene of his prayer in Gethsemane, where he struggles with the coming ordeal. 
Now, in comparison to the other Gospels, however, the Gospel of Luke has a particular emphasis on Jesus praying, a crucial component in the wider treatment of prayer in Luke-Acts. In addition to texts already cited, the Lucan account of Jesus' baptism distinctively has him praying. Likewise, the Lucan version of the scene where Jesus asks his disciples what people make of him opens distinctively again with Jesus, quote, praying alone. And similarly, the Gospel of Luke uniquely, again, has Jesus at prayer in the Transfiguration episode. As well, Luke 5.16 portrays Jesus as repeatedly withdrawing from the crowds for prayer. And in another passage, before choosing the twelve, he spends the night in prayer. Both of these statements also unique to Luke. In addition, the Gospel of Luke conveys several prayers ascribed to Jesus, more than in the other Gospels. All of these likely intended to have inspirational and didactic force. In Luke 10, we have the Q text, uh, as it is known among scholars, uh, which has a parallel in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus thanks God for the revelations made to infants, by whom he means his disciples, those whom the Son of Man has chosen for revelation of the Father and the Son. Uniquely, again, in Luke 22, Jesus assures Simon Peter that he has prayed for him, that his faith should not fail. In the Luke and Gethsemane scene, we have a version of Jesus' prayer corresponding to the synoptic parallels. Father, if you will it, let this cup pass from me. But in the crucifixion scene, whereas the other synoptics simply have Jesus utter a loud, inarticulate cry, in the Lucan parallel, Jesus addresses God in a final prayer. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. With wording drawn from Psalm 31, verse 5. In comparison with the attribution of words from Psalm 22, the famous, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, which is used in Matthew and Mark, the Gospel of Luke, interestingly, likewise has Jesus die with the words of a psalm on his lips, but it's a much more upbeat psalm, likely intended to model, more positively, a pious death. In the Gospel of John, Jesus both prays and teaches his disciples to pray also, but the author prefers a different vocabulary for some reason. He never uses the Greek words for pray or prayer, prosuke and prosukao, which are the dominant words used in every other text in the New Testament, but John never uses them once. The Johannine account of the feeding of the 5,000 refers to Jesus as giving thanks before distributing the bread, using the word eucharisteo, from which we get the word eucharist. This note echoed also in the subsequent scene where the crowd followed Jesus. By contrast, the synoptic accounts of the same feeding have Jesus bless God, using a Jewish term for prayer, eulogison, and in their distinctive accounts of the feeding of the 4,000, however, Mark and Matthew used the word eucharisteo. It is also interesting that in the Lucan Last Supper account, Jesus gave thanks, again, the word eucharisteo, over the bread and the cup, whereas in the synoptic parallels, Jesus pronounces a blessing of God over the bread and gives thanks over the cup. In both of these Lucan meal scenes, the author in Luke seems consistently, more consistently than the other evangelists, to have preferred a verb that struck a closer association with the Christian sacred meal practice and vocabulary, thereby presenting Jesus' actions as prefiguring Christian practice more closely, I think. The Johannine preference for Eucharisteo in the feeding account also likely had the same purpose. In Johannine passages where Jesus encourages his disciples to pray, however, the author prefers another term, uh, a term which means to make a request, iteo, 
These passages include the distinctively Johannine statements in which Jesus invites his disciples repeatedly to ask or pray, quote, in my name. In a few cases, encouraging requests made in my name to himself, but in many others, requests to be made to the Father. In addition, Jesus assures his disciples in chapter 15, verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, whatever you ask will be done for you. These references to prayer set in a relationship to Jesus and Jesus' name clearly make him integral, central to the prayer and ascribe to him a particular efficacy that can be invoked by believers in their prayers. To judge from other New Testament texts in which the direct invocation of Jesus' name is attested, and there are oodles of these, particularly in the book of Acts, these Johannine statements likely reflect the real specific practice of overtly invoking Jesus' mediatorial efficacy in early Christian prayers, a matter to which I'm going to return in a few moments. And this also certainly constitutes a distinctive prayer practice that marks off and identifies Christian believers. Other passages in the Gospel of John portray Jesus himself at prayer. But in these statements, the author prefers another word. It's very interesting. Whenever he talks about the disciples praying, he uses one word, aitao. Whenever he, prefers, whenever he refers to Jesus praying, he uses another word, erotao. And it's consistent. Now, why that is, I'm not sure. Additionally, uh, in, in, uh, in a couple of cases, he has Jesus simply speak to God, using the word lego, to speak. In both of these latter instances, there is also the visual detail of Jesus lifting his eyes toward heaven, an action similarly ascribed to him in his prayer in the feeding account in Matthew and Mark and Luke. All of these instances perhaps intended to make a somewhat more vivid representation of Jesus praying. And of course, it's traditional Jewish practice to look up to God, not to look down when you pray. In what is sometimes called the high priestly prayer, again, in John chapter 17, we have the most extended passage purporting to convey a prayer of Jesus in the entire New Testament. As commonly judged by scholars, I take it as essentially the author's composition, and so more indicative of his religious convictions than directly expressive of Jesus' own piety. So the length and placement of this prayer indicates how important the idea of Jesus praying and the content of the prayer were for the author. In this text, Jesus intercedes on behalf of his followers, and they explicitly include both Jesus' original disciples and, quote, all those who will believe, subsequently through their testimony, which clearly intended to sort of scoop in the readers. This passage dramatically reflects the conviction we've already noted, that the exalted Jesus intercedes for believers in heaven. Jesus portrayed here in this scene as already anticipating his glorification and also his intercessory role. Moreover, the specific petitions in the prayer were certainly intended to be meaningful for readers, and they may have served to project the sort of intercessions that they believed that the glorified Jesus was making for them in heaven. The repeated concern that believers be protected, for example, and kept firm in the faith would have obviously been encouraging, perhaps particularly in the early settings of opposition. The petitions for unity among Jesus' followers and for their perception of his glory and his unique relationship with God were also likely intended as inspiring and instructive. We get another reference to Jesus' prayer in the book of Hebrews in chapter 5. Here, Jesus is portrayed as, quote, having offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. As Harry Attridge has noted, The author here likely pictures Jesus in terms of, quote, the traditional image of a righteous person at prayer and alludes to Jesus' resurrection and exaltation as the positive answer to his prayers. 
After all, he wasn't spared from death, but he was rescued from death after death. Okay. In verse 8, Jesus is said, quote, to have learned obedience through what he suffered, meaning that in his sufferings, Jesus came to learn experientially what human obedience to God entailed. Thereby, the author says, perfected for his role as high priest for believers, Jesus is now, quote, the source of their eternal salvation. Now, though the emphasis in the passage is on Jesus as truly partaking of the human condition, and so the more able to be a perfect high priest for believers, the reference in verse 7 to his prayers and supplications that we noted earlier surely also presented him as an inspiring model for believers who likewise cry out to God in their own sufferings. This presentation of Jesus as inspiring role model of piety is reflected once again in Hebrews in chapter 12, where he is designated, quote, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Though prayer is not specifically mentioned here, Jesus is clearly the pathfinder and paradigm for believers in all aspects of their own spiritual lives. And as Attridge again noted, the faith inaugurated and perfected by Jesus here is not belief in doctrines, but instead, quoting Attridge, the fidelity and trust that he himself exhibited and that his followers are called upon to share. Now thirdly, Jesus as recipient of prayer. As we should expect of authors influenced by the Jewish religious background of the earliest Christian circles, in the New Testament, prayer is typically ascribed, uh, described as offered to God, the Father. But in some noteworthy cases, Jesus is the recipient or co-recipient of prayers. Indeed, some texts refer to believers quite simply as those who invoke Jesus or call upon him as a perfectly adequate uh, label for what Christians are which reflects, I think, the programmatic place of this devotional action, a matter I return to in a moment. Now, the early date of the evidence for invocation and prayer appeals to Jesus makes the phenomena very remarkable. There are earlier studies that are still valuable, along with more recent scholarly interest shown in these matters, but I don't have time here to engage them. I'm simply going to look at the primary text. If we consider the evidence in terms of the dating of the text in which it appears, we can begin with 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 11 and following, which records one of a number of what we may call wish prayers. That is, these are prayers stated in a, in a wish form using a technical uh, uh, Greek term, uh, an optative form of the verb. It's very irregular, in the New, or very unusual in the New Testament, but used rather consistently in these particular wish prayers. And 1 Thessalonians 3.11 is one of them. In this particular text, initially, God and Jesus are invoked together in verse 11. Interesting, with the optative singular verb, two people invoked, but a singular verb. And invoked to enable Paul to revisit the Thessalonians. The inclusion of Jesus in this prayer wish is in itself remarkable enough, particularly for a devout Jew such as Paul. But then, in the next statement, Paul appeals to the Lord, which clearly it has to be Jesus here, alone to make the Thessalonians abound in love for all and to establish their hearts blameless and holiness, quote, before God our Father at the appearance of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Alleging, quote, a tendency on the part of some to play down the role of Christ in prayer, Gordon Fee pointed to this text and related passages as indicating that Paul, in fact, addressed prayer to God and to Jesus, quoting Fee, sometimes to both together and sometimes to either alone, and it seems to be the case. As observed by Zerwick, in this text, quote, undoubtedly, Jesus is presented as an intimate association with God the Father in unity of action and as one to whom prayer may be addressed, 
That the passage really does reflect an idiom indicative of prayer is corroborated by other passages where Paul employs the same or very similar construction in what are fairly obviously prayer statements. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 and following, he invokes the God of peace, God, to sanctify believers wholly for the future appearance of Jesus. And in Romans 15, verse 5 and following, he, implore, he implores, quote, the God of patience and encouragement to promote harmony among readers so that they may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Moreover, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we have another text where God and Jesus, once again, are jointly invoked. Only in this case, in the reverse order, first Jesus and then God. To comfort and encourage believers and to confirm them in every good word and work. In 2 Thessalonians 3, the optative verb appeals are to the Lord alone, who in both cases I think is almost certainly Jesus, Whatever the authorship of this epistle, it certainly further indicates that Jesus frequently featured as recipient and co-recipient of prayer appeals in early Christian circles. The author clearly expected readers to recognize and affirm the sort of wish prayers that he records. We turn next to a very curious passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul, after recounting his many visions and mystical experiences, then refers to repeated appeals to the Lord again, rather clearly, the risen Jesus, for relief from a satanic affliction, the thorn in the flesh. Granted, Paul elsewhere uses the word here, uh, uh, parakaleo, to appeal, most frequently in appeals to readers or to others and not in his references to prayers. But his appeals to the risen Lord here are remarkable and have to be taken, I think, as a kind of prayer. On the one hand, Ostmeyer is correct to emphasize that Paul distinguished God in Jesus and that Paul typically describes his thanks and prayers as addressed to God and that for Paul it was through Jesus' redemptive work that the possibility for thanks and appeals to God was opened wide. Nevertheless, as Dunn again acknowledged in his recent discussion of early Christian worship, from this passage, quote, it is clear enough that Paul understood the exalted Christ as one who could be appealed to for help a request or petition that can readily be understood as prayer. Uh, if you know the uh, ongoing discussion between Professor Dunn and myself, you will know how difficult it must have been for him to write that. In the Acts account of Stephen's martyrdom, we get yet another indication of early, that early Christians made direct prayer appeals to Jesus. At the end of his speech in Acts chapter 7, the figure Stephen is depicted as declaring that he sees the heavens opened and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, which triggers the violence of the crowd that he's addressing. Then, as he expires, Stephen invokes the Lord Jesus with the request, receive my spirit, and also not to hold his death against those who stoned him. In the narrative, clearly, Stephen is presented as exemplary, and so his prayer appeals to Jesus depicted here must also be taken as reflective of devotional practices familiar to and approved by the author and the intended readers. The verb form used in Stephen's appeal, the middle form, for those of you who are Greekers, the middle form of the verb, epikaleo, connotes, as typically in Koine Greek, invoking some higher power, most often a deity. In the Greek Old Testament, the verb form is used many times in scenes of sacrificial worship and in more general references to prayer and invocation, at least 30 times in the Psalms and oodles of times elsewhere. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 13, famously, Paul incorporates a quotation of one of these Old Testament texts from the book of Joel, 
Quote, everyone who calls upon, epikaleo, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In a striking adaptation of the Joel statement to designate a claiming or invoking Jesus by name, whereas the Old Testament passage clearly involved invoking God, Yahweh. To be sure, the action of calling upon the name of Jesus had a clear and specific confessional content, affirming Jesus as rightful Lord, but it was also important to note it's a liturgical action or devotional action in which believers invoked the Lord Jesus. Paul's combination of the words to confess and to call upon in this passage is likely influenced by the combination of similar terms in the Greek Old Testament in Psalm 74 and elsewhere. And so in verses 9 through 10, the word should be taken as designating what has been called the cry of adoration, curious, Jesus, Lord Jesus. Paul's statements in 1 Corinthians 12 about the Spirit prompting this same acclamation is set within a larger context also dealing with worship, and so likely also refers to a liturgical action. Likewise, in Philippians chapter 2, in the so-called Christ hymn there, which runs from verses 5 through 11, the climactic lines of what is thought widely to derive from an early Christian hymn sung in worship portrays a future universal acclamation of Jesus as Lord, which was, in fact, ritually anticipated in early Christian worship gatherings. Indeed, as I said before, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul refers to believers simply as those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Everywhere. In Acts as well, believers are identified repeatedly as those who call upon Jesus' name. As Dunn has stated, calling upon Jesus was, quote, the defining feature of these early Christians, marking and distinguishing them from all others who called upon the name of some other deity or heavenly being. For individual believers, the practice likely commenced in their baptism, where one calls upon the name of Jesus in baptism. But it also seems to have been a regular feature of corporate worship. The description of this liturgical appeal to Jesus in phrasing taken, as I've noted, from wording in the Old Testament for worship of Yahweh, distinguished believers particularly from the prayer practice of other Jews for whom to call upon the name of the Lord would have meant simply worshiping the God of the biblical tradition. We have further confirmation that the invocation of Jesus was rather widely characteristic of early Christian circles, including Aramaic-speaking Christians, in Paul's incorporation of this Maranatha phrase, which I referred to earlier at the end of 1 Corinthians. It is now increasingly accepted that this expression derives from the devotional language of the earliest circles of Roman Judea, and that it represents an Aramaic imperative form, meaning something like, O Lord or Our Lord, come. This means that a strong eschatological tone adheres to the expression. The Lord appealed to is clearly Jesus. As to whether the appeal originally was for Jesus to be present in the spirit at the sacred meal, for example, or for Jesus' second coming, well, Hengel is probably right to urge that we should probably not too quickly exclude either sense, although the eschatological expectation of Jesus' future coming likely governed the sense, at least initially. The earliest Christian circles, in fact, saw their worship gatherings as anticipations or expressions of eschatological realities and hopes already formulated in their behavior. In any case, given that the Maranatha derives from devotional language and practice of Aramaic-speaking believers, we are dealing here, in the words of Hengel, with the earliest prayer to Jesus that we know. The liturgical setting of the Maranatha expression is, of course, further reflected in its retention in the Eucharistic context in the, the, the document uh, Didache, again, in chapter 10. 
It's widely thought also that the prayer appeal to Jesus in Revelation 22.20, come Lord Jesus, near the end of this work, is a Greek rendering of this Aramaic phrase. The author of Revelation was certainly a Jewish Christian and, interesting to note, had a fairly negative attitude about what he regarded as unwarranted liturgical innovations as reflected in his condemnation of people he calls Nicolaitans in chapter 2 and the woman he calls Jezebel, the prophetess, in uh, chapter 2 as well. If, as seems likely, it seems likely, therefore, that he conveys the traditional Maranatha expression in 2220. But whatever its connection to Maranatha, the appeal, come Lord Jesus, is self-evidently a direct prayer appeal to Jesus. And it is most likely reflective of devotional practice, I think, that originated far earlier than the late first century date of Revelation. As I say, this guy was not a progressive. He was not up for experimentation. He was a real conservative. And so it's most unlikely that in Revelation you're seeing something that's very new. It's most likely you're seeing something that's fairly standardized and, for, and longstanding. In viewing this invocation of Jesus in historical perspective, it is important to keep a clear focus. Although comparisons have been proposed with Jewish and pagan invocation of various deities and, angel, and angels, I think these are actually rather dubious. First, the evidence cited for Jewish invocation of angels from Hecalot texts or the Paris Magical Papyrus is from several centuries later than the New Testament, and so hardly comprises a context for them. In fact, there is no, according to all the recent studies that have been done, there is no direct evidence of Jewish invocation of angels in material contemporary with or prior to the New Testament. Religious beliefs and practices change and develop in living religious traditions, and so we need to use evidence with appropriate attention to chronology. Jews, however, may very well have invoked angels in the first century CE. My point is, that remains to be shown. Second, the phenomena are not the same. The magical and Jewish mystical texts cited reflect an invocation, if you look at them, of actually numerous divine or angelic beings, and typically for what has been called coercive purposes. That is, the idea is to invoke beings and then get them to do what you want them to do. You know, make that girl that lives next door absolutely mad for me so that she can't do without me or curse that guy next door and put him out of business so I can succeed, or whatever. Some of them are rather <clears throat> explicit. We, we, we probably can't use them here in the chapel, I think. <clears throat> As Lawrence Stuckenberg put it, quote, in any case, given the coercive nature of the materials, veneration is hardly an appropriate term to describe the posture toward any of the deities invoked. By contrast, the New Testament texts Evidence an invocation of Jesus solely, not as one among others, but the only one, as God's unique son and agent and the appointed Lord of believers, and the intense devotion to him is evident, I think. Thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, the function of the invocation of Jesus has no parallel. It appears that the corporate acclamation and invocation of Jesus as Lord functioned to constitute the Christian worship gathering and serve to mark and identify believers as Christians. That is, it had a powerful semiotic function for which we simply have no analogy in the mystical or magical texts, whether Jewish or pagan. Now finally, Jesus as the basis of Christian prayer. As noted already, in the New Testament, prayers are most often portrayed as addressed to God. Moreover, the prayer appeals to and acclamations of Jesus that we have considered are not presented in the New Testament text as an alternative prayer to God, as an alternative, rather, to prayer to God, and certainly not any competition or threat to the latter. 
Instead, Jesus is often co-recipient or even direct recipient of prayers, invocations, and liturgical acclamations as the unique Son and Lord affirmed by God the Father, who shares in the name and the glory of God the Father. That is, Jesus is appealed to and invoked and acclaimed in the New Testament text in obedience to the one God who has exalted Jesus and now demands that he be reverenced. That is, this inclusion of Jesus in devotional practice is done in the context of this understanding of Jesus' relationship to God and God's purposes. But if Jesus is reverenced with reference to God, it is also true and highly significant that prayers to and the worship of God in the New Testament are typically offered with reference to Jesus. New Testament discourse about God includes programmatic references to Jesus and also to the Spirit. And even more so, the devotional practices of prayer and worship have what I've called a dyadic shape, worship of the one God very much reconfigured to incorporate a second figure, Jesus. This is directly reflected in various New Testament statements about prayer and thanks to God is offered through Jesus or in his name. In several instances, Paul refers to his prayer and thanksgiving to God as done through Jesus. I thank my God through Jesus Christ, he can say, for example, or thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have a similar practice reflected also in Colossians 3, which exhorts believers to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus and to give thanks to God through him. And Ephesians 5 urges thanksgiving to God, quote, always and for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 14 through 16, Jesus is pictured as repeatedly, as we noted before, encouraging his followers to make their request to God the Father in my name. And Paul's statement in, in 2 Corinthians 1 that through him, Jesus, we say amen to God for his glory may also reflect the central place of Jesus in Christian prayer. It is likely, I think, that these statements reflect actual prayer practices. It seems to me fully plausible that these practices involved actually naming Jesus as the one through whom and in whose name prayer was offered. Jesus' name clearly functioned as a vehicle of divine power and blessing, as reflected in the regular invocation of his name in early Christian baptism, exorcisms, and other deeds of power. I know of no similar practice in contemporary Jewish circles involving such a focus on one particular distinguishable figure in prayers and thanksgiving to God. We also have statements about Jesus being integral to glorifying God. In 1 Peter chapter 4, believers are exhorted to exercise their various gifts, quote, so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 16 directs eternal glory, quote, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ. And Jude 25, there is still a more elaborate statement of praise to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ. Indeed, in Revelation chapter 5, in the scene of heavenly worship, we have an elaborate statement of praise directed jointly to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb, Jesus. Now, I take these references as indicative of the prayer practices of early Christian circles reflected in these writings. Paul's statement in Romans chapter 5, at the opening of chapter 5, likely represents the self-understanding of many early believers, perhaps especially Gentile believers. Quote, through our Lord Jesus Christ, believers have been granted God's favor, in virtue of which they now stand in a new relationship with God, and even in confident hope of sharing the glory of God. Therefore, they could boast, quote, in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
As noted earlier, Hebrews 4:16 posits Jesus' redemptive efficacy as the basis for believers to approach the throne of grace with boldness, confident of mercy and grace to help in the time of need. And in chapter 13, directs, quote, through him, Jesus, then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. Indeed, the early Christian appeal to God as Father, interesting and very importantly in today's gender questions, the early Christian appeal to God as Father seems in fact to have been shaped heavily by and based on the conviction that Jesus is God's unique Son and in Jesus' relationship to God as Father. Very interesting to note. In the Bible, God is not ever portrayed as the Father of the world, but only the Father of believers. And that's very important because if God is the father of the world, then he is unavoidably male. But if he's father only by adoption and only through Jesus Christ, then to call God father is not making a male statement at all. This is illustrated, for example, in Paul's statements about believers addressing God as Abba, father, under the impulse of the spirit of God, who is also, Paul says, the spirit of Christ and the spirit of his son. As reflected in other New Testament texts, for believers, God is Father, particularly because he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in several passages. A striking redesignation of God when compared with Jewish traditional references to, for example, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, I trust that the preceding discussion has been sufficient to show that Jesus held a major and multifaceted place in the prayer practices of early Christians as heavenly intercessor for praying believers, as teacher and model for their own praying, as the co-recipient and recipient of prayers, most often invoked to constitute the worship gathering, and as the basis for Christian prayer. Though sharing numerous characteristics with Jewish prayer practice of the time, from the earliest observable moments, Christian prayer took on the distinctive features that we have noted here. Earliest Christian prayer was certainly distinctive in referring to Jesus at all, but more profoundly still, the programmatic and singular place of Jesus was without parallel or precedent in the religious environment of the time. This means that the place of Jesus in early Christian prayer contributed strongly to the emergence of a distinctive religious identity that was particularly marked by the place of Jesus. Thank you.